Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to draw your attention to the two ways you can support the podcast financially. If you would like to make a one-off donation, I have set up a Just Giving page where you can help the show continue on into the future by donating as much or as little as you like. Alternatively, there are six different levels of subscription starting from just £5 a month over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. There you will find two new podcast series, a monthly bulletin, group meetings, articles and mini-episodes attached to this series. The details are in the show notes below and I would greatly appreciate any help you can manage. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who has been at the forefront of the historically informed performance movement for over 40 years, having spent over 30 years directing the orchestra he founded in 1972, The English Concert. It is a great pleasure to welcome Trevor Pinnock. Trevor, it's lovely to speak to you today. How are you? I'm very well and uh, looking forward to our chat. Um, I've asked, started asking people, what's lockdown been like for you? Because it's been a few months now. I've not looked at a score at all. Um, what have you been up to? Well, I've had quite an extraordinary time, but not so much because of lockdown, but because I somehow managed to sprain my wrist. Ah. And I didn't realise that this takes months to heal, and uh, which it's now done, I, and, and I find that I can play again. But I had to go through some interesting times of self-doubt of whether, you know, will it ever work again? Mm. And so that was quite fascinating, because I'm right in the middle of preparing uh, book two of the Well-Tempered Clavier, Ah. Uh, to follow on book one, which came out recently. So this is uh, important stuff for me, and I really didn't want to lose it as I'm as I'm recording another big batch in the summer. Well, so it sounds like at least lockdown for you has come at the perfect time where you can give your wrist a rest. Uh, that's difficult to say. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, this, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's come at the right time. Um, well, actually, it worked out quite well, yeah. really. And... Uh, just uh, having to go through the mental stuff, which is quite interesting. And I found that gave me a lot of time for reflection mm. on life and uh, all sorts of interesting things. That, you know, as you get more and more out of touch with your concert giving, you tend to examine yourself more and more. And I found it was quite easy to let sort of self-doubts and things and criticisms of my self come into the picture and have to deal with those and I I see from things that people have written to me that other people have been sharing that same sense of isolation and uh, and self-criticism and things coming into their thinking and I think it's because we're so out of touch with our whole mode of expression of our lives. Mm, I think you're right. Uh, I think it's absolutely true. A lot of conductors have said, said to me they've dealt with it in their own specific way and, um, yeah, with self-doubts and with, you know, worries about the future. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting times, weird times, but interesting yes. times. I was just thinking, in some ways, I saw it as a challenge. I see life as a series of interesting challenges when you're moving from one thing to another and it seemed to me this is something so life-changing for all of us 
None of us yeah. actually knows what's going to happen. And I thought, well, the only thing we can do is to all have a pioneer spirit. <laughs> and because the only other way is that we become victims of the situation. Mm. And there's no way in between, really. And in some ways, I'm quite excited by this pioneering spirit where we're all forced to think new ways to do things, to face up to things, to create. In some ways, it's a stimulus for any sort of art. Well, I think you're right. And you've made me realise that maybe by doing this podcast, that has been my little way of pioneering. Um, it wasn't something I wasn't planning on doing, but it's kept, kept me creative and kept me talking about music and conducting in the time. And yeah, I yeah, think well, you're I right. Think it's, yeah, it, yeah. it is really interesting yeah. and something worthwhile, which is why I said, oh, yes, I certainly want to join <laughs> you, Mike, on this one. Yeah. Um, let's go right back to the beginning and find out when music first came into your life. You mentioned, of course, that you're a keyboard player. Was that your first introduction to music or did it come in a different way? I think I have to go further back than that because mm. how did I discover music? As far as I know, from what I was told, I discovered music when I was taken to the seaside when I was a toddler mm. and there was a brass band playing and I wouldn't let my parents take me home. I insisted <laughs> on dancing to the brass band till it stopped. Um, I don't remember the actual situation, but I know exactly the emotion that came out of that, um, which I still get with music, that I suddenly felt I knew where I was. I understood it better than I understood words, and I still do. Mm. And this made life really worth living, I thought. And since that time, I've always been uh, somehow immersed in music. I had another toddler experience, which I do remember. I always had music going around in my head. I remember once my mother or we were growing some carrot tops. You know that lovely thing when you can put yeah. the carrot tops in and see the ferns growing. And I said to her once, Mummy, can you hear the carrot tops singing? <laughs> and she, to my complete shock, said that she couldn't hear it. And it was the first experience I had that um, well, that she might have some sort of feeling that I didn't have or I might have some sort of independent feeling. But uh, that's really where my music came from. I, I had a very similar experience. And it is weird, isn't it, as a child? You know, I remember being woken up, um, having a nightmare because I could hear the wolf from Peter and the Wolf in my head. You know, oh, the, wow. the, the three horns and the yeah. Ponticello strings underneath. That music yeah. used to frighten me. I used to wake up in a cold sweat as a nightmare as a child. Uh, and, you know, my mum would, or mum and dad would say, well, what's woken you up? And say, it's the wolf, it's the wolf. And they obviously thought, well, what's he talking about? What wolf? Oh, yes. And it's only later, in, later on I realised it, it was the music in my head that was waking me up, not an actual yes. picture of a wolf. Um, and, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Simon Rattle talks about him always having a soundtrack going on in his head and he didn't understand oh, yes. why, why other kids didn't have it. And I, you know, yes. I think that's peculiar to us musicians that you know, there's it, always something going on, isn't there? Absolutely, yes. And 
Apart from hearing my grandmother play hymns when we went to her house, I don't remember any other contact with music until at some point I was quite an adventurer and I used to escape from our garden and I've, I walked up the road and it happened that there was a concert pianist, Ronald Smith, who lived just up the road and he was always practising. Mm. And I think one day I was found sitting outside his door as a four-year-old or something like that. And um, there I could hear music and sometimes I would escape and go <laughs> up the road to the music. But then I discovered if I walked down the road, there was a building site and there the builders would offer me tea and uh, fun chat and uh, even donuts. <laughs> and uh, I'd, so the sort of conflict between going up the hill and going down the hill um, came on quite early in my life. And, I, and it's been an interesting one ever since. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, well, it, from practising as a teenager to all sorts of, you know, things that can pull, lead you astray. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so when, when did you first start playing an instrument? So, um, well, it was evident that uh, I wanted to do music and it turned out that Ronald Smith's sister, June Smith, who was, I think, at the Royal Academy at the time, uh, she taught piano to kids. Mm. And so when I was about six, well, I was six, um, then she started teaching me. And this was just my whole world. I think I must have started early in the year because I know that at summertime, suddenly I found that we were going on holiday only to nearby Whitstable, but we were actually going to stay there. And I burst into tears because I would miss my piano lesson. <laughs> and I remember there were some arrangements made. There was a very nice lady who came and did some sort of theory stuff with me in the caravan. Um, but it was, to me, that uh, that was just my world and continued to be so. Uh, she was such a stimulus. I got incredibly upset when at 11, uh, I was 11, she got married and moved away. I, it had never occurred to me that she'd leave me. You know, I was desperately <laughs> in love with her. But by that time, I'd gone to the choir school. My parents got me some little lessons with a local singing teacher and prepared me for taking the choir school exam which I did somehow at about six and three quarters, I suppose, I went off to the choir school for the first time. And that was just amazing. Uh, not the school bit, really. I, I didn't manage to fit into any schools very well at all. I think I had what's called learning difficulties now, which mm. weren't called that then. Um, uh, they were just called stupidity. You know, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I I can remember some teacher writing, uh, "This boy is incapable of concentration on any subject whatsoever," <laughs> um, and so that was the picture. But there I had some very fine musical colleagues too. Uh, uh, Roger Vignoles was perhaps mm -hmm. a year 
uh, you know, the pianist, yes. was a year um, above me, I think. He was somebody I admired enormously, very nice chap. And there were others too. Uh, Stephen Varco, the baritone, was somewhere there a year or two beneath. And what was so great was that we were like little professionals, really, doing this mm. job every day, going in to sing. And I would think that that's a good half of my discipline of musical training, because yes. there I learned to listen. I learned how to sing or play in ensemble naturally, you know. Mm. And so it was, it was a tremendous discipline and one for which I will always be grateful. Of course, at the choir school, one of my great colleagues was Mark Elder, now Sir Mark Elder. And I remember we had one evening when we were joint leaders of a choir. I was one side, he was the other. I think I was the senior leader. Somehow or other, we were both really out of order and we got the whole choir giggling and laughing. <laughs> and it got so bad that the presenter came round and ordered me to leave the cathedral. So <laughs> off I went. Next day I got hauled up in front of the authorities, never to lead a choir again. <laughs> and um, But what I never understood is that Mark, who I thought was responsible for a lot of this, somehow he got promoted <laughs> into my own position. And so that was a big lesson in lifemanship for me at that time. And many years later, I finally forgave him for it. And he's a fairly close uh, neighbour now, so it's, uh, uh, he's a joy. Uh, after Canterbury Cathedral, it's uh, up to the Royal College, and uh, you're studying organ and harpsichord. Um, what was London like then? What was studying like? Who were your teachers? It was very different. I had a fairly somehow chaotic teenage time because I went from school to school rather unsuccessfully. And when I got thrown out of the last one, I also because I was in a moment of chaos with life, uh, I somehow, Alan Wicks, who was teaching me the organ, decided that he wouldn't teach me anymore. And this had a very good effect on me, because I got some lessons with a man named Nicholas Jackson, now Sir Nicholas Jackson, in London. Mm. And he was teaching me organ and harpsichord. And he was a friend of the great, Dutch harpsichordist Gustav Leonhardt, mm. who became an interesting sort of influence. And also I, I met sort of London-based musicians of the top sort of freelance guys who he played with in ensemble. And so after working with him a f for a few months, I got an organ scholarship to the Royal College, where I studied the organ with Rafe Downs, who was, he was the man who designed the Royal Festival Hall organ. Oh, right, okay. And, and he was a very 
fine player and I studied the harpsichord with Millicent Silver and she was a very fine teacher and uh, I was a really difficult student because I, <laughs> I didn't properly respect her and I was trying to do something else. I remember once copying something that Gustav Leonhardt had done and because I was 17 or 18 I I dis I made it better than he'd done it as well and I took it to a, as a lesson. I was playing away um, the Bach Partita. I was feeling enormously pleased with myself. I, I remember thinking, oh, I'll, I'll show her how to play the harpsichord. <laughs> and then I suddenly heard this voice from the corner of the room saying, what on earth do you think you're doing? <laughs> and, uh, and my balloon was burst immediately. Mm. And uh, it was probably the best lesson I ever had, I expect. I had a very similar one um, uh, with my violin teacher at the start of my second year, and a lesson that I shall never, ever forget. It was the biggest kick up the backside I think I've ever had in my life by any teacher. Um, and yeah, and it taught me a lesson. My God, did it taught me, it taught me a lesson. I, I, you know, I, I mean, I was pretty arrogant anyway, but I think before that lesson, I was probably insufferable. And she, she brought me right down to, to ground. Um, and I think you need it. I think, you, you know, everyone... Yeah. Because yeah. it sounds like you're a precocious like me. I mean, you know, uh, episode 50 may well be me being interviewed by somebody and I'll tell the story about my final school and how I didn't stay there for very long either. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it sounds like, you know, precocious, but, but eventually we need somebody to, you know, pull you back down to earth and go, hey, you know, come on, knuckle down. Absolutely, mm. yes. And... Uh, the Royal College at that time was a fairly strange environment, mm. really. And uh, I remember in my last year, I'd been doing some quite successful concerts with my Galliard harpsichord trio, which I, I can tell you about. But mm. um, And I wanted to give up playing the organ because I didn't see myself being a concert organist or cathedral organist. And I remember going to see the registrar about it, who advised me that um, this would be a very bad idea and that it was impossible to make a living as a harpsichordist oh. and that I should become a cathedral organist and do the harpsichord on the side. I remember him saying that. But then he said something which made me absolutely give up the organ which was, if you do give up the organ, we'll have to take your scholarship money away. Mm. <laughs> well, um, and this, I was so appalled by this threat that he gave, and the scholarship money was, in those wonderful days, made up by the local authority anyway. Mm. So mm. Um, the £50 they'd taken away was given back to me by the local authority. And I, I did give up the organ, and I went on... They didn't like me doing my concerts outside the um, college. Which is just bizarre, isn't it? That, you know, well, yeah. it, it is. <laughs> I think there's probably a, a much more enlightened attitude yes. now than there was then. Mm. Well, you mentioned the Galliard Harpsichord Trio, which was a big thing. So that started whilst you were still at the, at the Royal College? Yes. Mm. I'm, what I can't quite remember is how I met... Stephen Preston, the flute player, and Anthony Pleath, the cellist, mm. because they went to the Guildhall School of Music mm. 
and somehow I got into working with them and and sharing sort of off time with various musicians and actors from the Guildhall. And quite how that happened, I don't know. But every Thursday, we'd go up to Fenton House, which has this marvellous collection of old harpsichords, and we would spend a, a day rehearsing together. And sometimes we'd go and rehearse. I was using a piano up at uh, Tony's house, and so I got into contact with his father, William Pleath, yes. from whom I learned just a huge amount. Uh, he was the most fabulous bass player, I mean, bass line player, yeah. as was his son. And sometimes I'd hear the Allegri quartet practising away. Of course, you probably knew Peter Thomas, didn't you? Absolutely, uh, yes. Because uh, uh, he, he, he was the second violin in those days. Well, he was he was leader of the CBSA when I joined in. Uh, well, yeah. when I was offered the job in 1991 and I started in 92. And yeah, he was leader of the orchestra. Yeah. Um, yeah, what a wonderful, wonderful violinist and, and a sound. I'm not a I'm not a believer, but if I could say this, a sound given to anybody by God. He could make that sound on any instrument. I, I remember giving him yeah. my violin that I'd bought for, I don't know, it was under £2,000. It was a modern violin, and he was playing it on Amati, and he picked mine up, and it sounded exactly the same. And I thought, oh, yeah. how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. marvellous. Yes. And, and William Peeth, of course, was a teacher of Jacqueline Dupre, and, yeah, very celebrated cellist and teacher. Yes. Mm. And he, he had the quality of... I remember he joined us playing cello continuo for some broadcasts that we made. And uh, he had a way of giving life to a bass line, giving constant light and shade. Mm. And somehow I, I sort of assumed that general musicians would do this sort of thing. You know, even orchestral musicians. And it was quite a shock for me to find out that that wasn't necessarily the case at all. Mm, mm. Um, certainly, especially in my early time of conducting, as opposed to working with the English concert, um, when I did quite a bit of conducting it in America, mm. I, I was immediately shocked by the, uh, a very wooden style of playing in those days, which I then, I learned, I remember somebody from Chicago Symphony t talking to me, or me, I was talking with him, and he said, well, what you're asking us to do, he says, absolutely wonderful, but it's, it, it's in many ways against our training, because <laughs> the thing is, if we, if we don't play exactly the dynamic of a line in an audition, if we start introducing shaping, um, mm. we, we'd fail the audition. <laughs> and he said, you, you, uh, you know, you've got to um, either mark it in the part or, um, uh, or request it, mm. you know, which was an interesting thing. And I think that was especially the case when I started doing stuff over there. Because the, the sort of symphony orchestra style was very different to the style 
that I'd known playing with the Academy of St. Martin's, yes. for instance, yeah. which was quintessentially a, a, a sort of chamber music approach. And indeed, the whole sort of bowings of everything were very different in those days, you know, uh, whereas now everybody, even the symphony orchestras, uses separate bows for dotted figures, you know, tum, mm. tum, 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 uh, quite normally. Um, in those days, everything was hooked. Yeah, everything would be uh, hook, hooked and and sort of down between the middle and the point, which is yeah. a, is a sound that uh, with a baroque bow you can. It's almost impossible to make that sound with a baroque bow. Yeah, um, yeah. I know that as a fiddle player, and when I used to teach Bach, you know, um, I used often used to get hold of a baroque bow and, and prove it and make my students use it. But yeah, it, it was a sound that has gone, and rightly so. I think you know the lightness is important. Yes. Funnily enough, I was trying to a certain extent to recreate some of that sound recently because mm. I was recording. I had a very good group of Royal Academy students and students from Toronto, Glen Gould School, and we were recording Bach's Goldberg variations in a chamber orchestra arrangement, small chamber orchestra arrangement by Josef Koffler, a Polish composer who did it at the end of the 1930s. Mm. Uh, so I was using largely Boeing's of uh, Hermann Schechsen. Oh, and right, yes. So going back to that sort of stuff that I'd known before, and it was an interesting challenge trying to be sort of true to Koffler's intentions and sound world and trying to be true to Bach at the yeah. same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah that uh, almost completely opposed in that regard. You know, 1930s Boeing's of yeah. Baroque music compared to what, you know, the period instrument group or movement yeah. but, now, now think it should be. But the thing is, um, I had some people criticised me for doing the Koffler because they said, how, you know, isn't that a sacrilege? No, it's not at all, because... Um, he approached that music really seriously and out of his love for Bach. Mm. And uh, the thing is that all music performance goes through fashion. And so the, the most wonderful thing is that I mean, Bach's music, which has gone on since all the time since he composed it, and has gone through Mendelssohn and everybody else and all the stars... But the fashion changes, but the music is indestructible, mm. you know. And um, I can remember when I first heard the St. Matthew Passion, which would have been old Karl Richter recording, perhaps even the first one. And I thought it was the most amazing stuff. I remember singing some of it when I was in the choir school. But when I first came across that performance of St Matthew Passion in my early teens, I was left with this feeling of the wonder of Bach. Mm. And it didn't really occur to me until I listened back at a certain point. Um, when I started doing St Matthew Passion, in a totally different way, I hadn't realised just how different it mm. was to mm. that Karl Richter performance 
um, I felt I was performing the same music and I felt that it was um, sort of emotionally the same journey. But of course, it was totally different. Mm. And I remember putting on that Corita recording some years later after I'd started to think, oh my goodness. And I didn't feel there was anything wrong with it at the time when I first heard it. And in fact, in a certain sense, there wasn't. I mean that's that's a discussion. Well, it's it's not far away if we think about the chronology of your life because you know at, at this stage you've left the college. You're working as you said with the Academy of St Martins. You've got your the Galliard Trio. You even do a solo recital at the Purcell Room, and then we come to the trio expanding to become the English Concert. And 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 now we're talking. We are going into that time where you're talking about. Uh, I mean, what term do you like to use? I mean, there's historically informed performance, there's period performance, there's... What what term do you like to use? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, you know, I don't like pigeonholes and labels. No, I know, no. I, no. I, uh, from my own point of view, I'm simply a musician. Yes. And we, we take certain decisions. You see, I knew that... In a certain sense, at that time, we were at the end of a road. The Academy was doing that music as well as it could be done mm. in a certain style. There had been some very interesting stuff coming out, of, like Honenkorn and Gustav yes. Leonhardt, yeah. um, which was showing something else. And I wanted to explore my own way because I, I thought we were in a sort of cul-de-sac and and that we needed new knowledge and in the early days of doing it I sometimes had considerable doubts because it's sometimes it simply didn't sound very good and I'd think oh gosh maybe we should go back to the instruments that can do it but in fact really I have to go back to if it was good enough for Bach it it must be good enough for us. Mm. And if there's something wrong with it, it's because we're not doing it properly. And to a very large extent, that's been proved because you can hear people now on natural horns and on Baroque oboes and things playing stuff that simply was impossible when when the movement started out. Mm. Yes, It seemed as if all this stuff had to be discovered but now, for now, for some people, it's it's quite a natural procedure. It's almost as if those musicians have had to, or shall I say, it's almost as if musicians have had to relearn those skills. Um, you know, the, if we went back in a time machine to Bach's time, the, there would have been horn players who could play that sort of stuff. And then over the years, because of the invention of the valve and all of that, skills change. And then, you know, and now a new generation of people have had to have, have learned those old skills if that makes yeah. sense it's a lot of it's to do with mindset yes somehow and just the willingness to open because it's clear any really good player can make something out of any instrument mm. and so it's the will to do so and you don't lose your your inner 
level of what you accept as good. You know, you're still aiming at the same thing. So how did the English concerts really start? Uh, how did the expansion go from a trio of, of three yeah. to... Uh, and and then I'm intrigued now because, you know, we've been talking oh, over half an hour and you've mentioned conducting only as an aside and uh, going to America, but how did how did you suddenly become uh, start directing from the harpsichord? And, yeah, um, well, we out? didn't get to the conductor yet. Of course, yeah. I was <laughs> direct. I I was directing from the harpsichord yes. from the point that I start the the Galliard harpsichord trio. We drew a close to after six years. There's only a certain amount of repertoire for flute and cello and harpsichord, and mm. we'd sort of come to the end of that. And when I started the English concert, it was all people who had some sort of interest or thought they might be interested uh, in trying out with the old instrument. Because we're all doing different jobs with some players mm. in the English chamber orchestra, uh, different things, one in the academy. Um, I was doing teaching piano in school, basically, and doing odd jobs, playing with uh, London freelance sort of orchestras and sort of telephone mm. orchestras, so uh, the Philom Musica of London sometimes, and those uh, particularly challenging dates where you turn up on the day, you know, to do a Handel Oratorio or something, which mm -hmm. the conductor would spend a lot of time on the first few numbers, and then... Uh, you'd end up with the last half hour of the work sight reading it during the concert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we've all done a we've all done a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, but then of course I was directing from the harpsichord, and it wasn't until it was. Just, I mean, there were lots and lots of things I was doing playing chamber music with Jordi Saval, who gave the name English mm. concert the English concert. And it didn't really come to a point of conducting till well after I'd entered the Deutsche Grammophon contract. Mm. Well, Deutsche Grammophon had sniffed around for about five years before wanting an orchestral contract. Um, and we, uh, we'd already embarked on recording with a small company, CRD, uh, mm. previously from about 1975. But then at a certain point, uh, Deutsche Grammophon in the early 1980s decided they'd like to have a Haydn Mass. We did the Haydn Nelson Mass. And I think that was probably the first conducting that I was doing. So I, I came to it enormously late. And mm. uh, uh, I knew a lot about music, but not much about conducting. And <laughs> it was only a few years later... Uh, when I hadn't done much conducting, that I found myself thrown into conducting Giulio Cesare at the Met, um, mm. which I was ill-equipped to do, not having really done any opera, um, apart, although I did do the Giulio Cesare at the Royal Academy of Music before going out there, but um, not having significant conductor skills. And uh, so that I would say was one of the failures of my life. Interesting, I mean, there's one thing we all have to deal with as conductors or anybody else, I suppose, is is uh, 
dealing with with failure and mm. uh, it's it took me a long time to work out that with my particular makeup uh, which is where the music's driven predominantly from the stomach rather than from the analytical mind that uh, I could very easily given certain situations get my musical spirit undermined and it took me a long time to realize that not only did that cut my communication with the orchestra sort of dry it up but it also cut some of the access to the part of the music in me that can make it magical rather than Mm. ordinary Mm. and uh, I've now eventually I just I wouldn't like to say how recently but not so long <laughs> I you know I feel that I'm I'm very comfortable now as a conductor because I've but and one of the things that it taught me was how as conductors we have some sort of responsibility to our orchestra members and our uh, soloists which is to to be aware of their own vulnerabilities Mm, you know and to to cover that you know there's lots of things that that sort of reveal that you know there's sort of impossible dynamic markings you know (laughs) a a lovely bit of solo work with three or four pianos in front of it this doesn't come in much in most of the music I do but you know when you're going later uh, Verdi or Tchaikovsky um you get very, very extreme dynamic markings. Mm. And if they're not handled in the right way, of course, they can destroy players. Or if the conductor lets them destroy the players, it's easy to do. Um, But in fact, thinking about dynamics, to me, they're just an invitation to an emotion, to a feeling. Um, Mm. And it's not a sort of physical scale, uh, sort of scientific scale of what is a piano and what's a forte. Uh, one of the things that really bugs me about so good editions of Mozart or Haydn is that very often the editor will add a piano in front mm, of a solo right. uh, where the composer would rarely do so. And it... I mean, of course, the soloist is not going to play forte because it's in an obviously piano section. But um, Mm. if you put a piano in front of it, it immediately stifles the solo and just takes the edge off the freedom of the musician to inhabit a really musical space instead of doing a job, you know, instead of doing process (laughs) instead uh, process instead of music. Well, you're right. It cannot be. I remember one particular conversation with a principal string player, and and I asked for something to be louder, and the answer came back. But it says piano. I said, "Well, piano is relative. It's oh, relative yeah. to everybody around you." You yeah. know, I I find that line very interesting. And so, if you want me to talk in decibels, I can. But I'd rather just ask you to play louder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And and, it, and it, it, all dynamics, as you say, have, have so much to do with the. The music and and you, there is no scale. There's no you know 
you can't turn around and say, well, I'm playing between 58 and 63 decibels, therefore it must be mezzo piano. You know, yeah. that, it just doesn't exist. Um, uh, and I think you're right. It's, it's part of our job is to be a balance engineer. It's part of our job is to is to find the right way of talking to an orchestra to say that piano needs to be more or less and, uh, and, and talk about it in musical terms. Yeah, I think there's, there's a, an idea at which I find very appealing that um, some of those most extreme sort of dynamic markings, uh, going back to Tchaikovsky or Verdi, uh, uh, that sort of thing, um, are products of writing for the theatre where there's very little rehearsal and mm. and they're things to force a reaction for somebody to do something special. So not simply mm. just to play ordinary, for boring forte, but um, to really do something on the other, on that side, mm. or somebody not to do just a pianissimo. You know how players can sort of swi just switch off involvement when it says piano or pianissimo. It just becomes... Mm less instead of something special uh, of course if you put four p's then somebody's going to really uh, do something in fact i wonder whether you could tell me what sort of challenges directing from the harpsichord was for you and and how gradual i mean i know you said that you know you you ended up doing a Haydn mass and um uh, and when uh, deutsche gramophone came along you conducted more but what were the challenges of directing from the harpsichord and how did you overcome them if there were any you may have found it staggeringly easy i don't know <laughs> well somehow um i never considered that there would be any difficulties mm. um and I think that's because when I play the harpsichord and am at it there, I'm so sure of myself inside with my music, mm. um, what it is. You know, I'm, I'm very sure of, say, tempo mm. or exactly how I want the music to sound from the very first note, not getting into it. And... I think that when I'm directing from the harpsichord, that must have informed me because I still do. When I do some big masses and things or Messiah or something like that, I I would still direct from the harpsichord in the sense that I do all the solo numbers from mm. the harpsichord. And one thing I've realised is that even with a larger orchestra and further apart, that it seems to be that when I'm seated at the harpsichord, people know exactly how the music's going to go. Mm. And I very seldom any problem with just uh, conveying that. So it must sort of come out of my body mm. and the movements that I make. I suppose I must have learned early on to do a good upbeat, mm. uh, which conveys a lot of information. Well, and what's interesting is that, that this episode comes uh, comes hot on the heels of a of Ludovic Morlo talking about learning to conduct with his hands in his pockets, and you know, oh, yeah. in early conducting lessons was told you know conduct the orchestra with, without your hands, 
And basically, that's what you have to do is is use your body, use your head, use the nod of an, you know, a slight, all sorts of body language that human beings read all of the time to inform and to help and to, you know, um, I think I find that fascinating that it's almost got divorced from conducting in a verticomas for real, you know, with a baton in your hand and standing there without uh, a harpsichord in front of you. Uh, and conductors have forgotten that they can use other parts of their bodies, including you know, body language and the head and the eyes. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that when you when you came to stand up without the harpsichord in front of you and just conduct, that you found that you had all sorts of tools at your disposal to do that with. Well, I wish, um, but I don't <laughs> think it was as easy as that because I was too worried about what I should be doing as a conductor. Yes, and yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. My mind was on what I should be doing with my hands and all that stuff, um, instead of using the very bits of me which I could have used. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't until I learned a lot more that I realised that I could. I remember uh, Bernstein used to do a lot of, uh, in his teaching and in his performance, he'd do a lot of stuff, not with his hands, but with his with his eyebrows, with his face yes i remember i met i met him at tanglewood and we had some uh, after that in years after that we had some wonderful times discussing music and mm. i remember one thing that i learned watching one of his classes in tanglewood he was doing the beginning of the brahms fourth symphony and he was working with students on on how to conduct the beginning and giving the demonstration of how he could conduct it without doing anything mm. <laughs> uh, you just saw the slightest thing of his shoulders or perhaps his eyebrows that was it that was it you know and but one of the things I remember in our discussions I remember him I think he got up and he came and shook me by the shoulders and he said just think how Mozart 39th symphony could sound on period instruments <laughs> this was before anybody done it or he hadn't heard anybody do it. I hadn't done it yet. Mm. And uh, it's quite fascinating because a lot of conductors whom I admire, um, I've realised or learned that they became absolutely fascinated by the period instrument sound. Whether they liked it altogether or not is not really the the point. Mm. Um, but it, it, it did affect their thinking and stimulate their their thought well that leads on to a question that i had i wrote down specifically for you because um we're now at that point in history where you can basically hear well, let's use mozart's 39th symphony we can go right back and we could hear it on period instruments with gut strings and natural trumpets and timpani as they would have been and all of that and you can still, probably, somewhere in the world, go and hear a performance that is more akin to, as you were talking about, sort of 1950s Boeing, with a huge string section and everybody playing on modern instruments. And you can hear every variation of that between the extremes. So, you know, you might hear a modern symphony orchestra, but using phrasing that the, the, the English concert would be using. Or you might hear a modern symphony orchestra, but with natural trumpets and, and, uh, or, and tap timpani. Where do you stand on the variations or the gradations in between 
I'm interested to know as somebody who is at the forefront of period performance that you know you you were you were at the far one end of the scale doing everything on natural instruments what do you think about all of the variations between seating for instance violins opposite each other you know does that bother you if you see a performance and the violins are sitting next to each other rather than opposite each other not a whole lot, no. Um, <laughs> because some people get incredibly upset about it. I have I to tell know. you that. Um, yes. I call them the antiphonal yes. violin police on Twitter. Um, yes. <laughs> they get um, so upset about I, it. I sometimes like antiphonal seating very much, uh, especially if yeah. if I'm confident about who the leader of the second violins is. Well, in, uh, in, yes, indeed. Um, yeah. But then there have been situations where I've, asked orchestras to move to one side, the violins sitting together, because mm. I don't see the right stuff going on there. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it, uh, and of course there's some orchestras like Leipzig who always sit with antiphonal seating. Yes. Uh, whether that came from sort of um, personal basis at some point when the as somebody couldn't stand somebody else, I've got no idea whether it came from musical well, pieces. It, it may have been. It may have been. They never. They never. They never moved to violins on the left anyway. I mean, it, it could well have been. Yeah. 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 Well, funnily um, enough, I learned quite recently that when Mendelssohn first started, and they they um, they were standing in those days, but when he hmm. started, the the first violins were on the right, and the second violins were on the left. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I don't know when that changed. But anyway, um, about performance, I'm very much, I mean, for me, and it's always been the case, even when I started the English concert and went on with it, I'm much more interested in music than in in actually the equipment that we're yes. using. And so it really depends on the orchestra and the style, I mean, I find now that with some very, very good orchestras, uh, sometimes they'll, uh, I suppose they think I'm a specialist. And, and so I get some very extreme clipped sort of articulations or hmm. um, no vibrato. Yeah. And I have to, uh, I could, could, could you use a bit of vibrato, please? Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was whether it's a non-vibrato or vibrato sound, I always want to explore sound. And it's very unusual that when vibrato's sort of taken away as a negative, that it sounds good. Uh, mm. It's fine if people know what to do with the bow playing yes. non-vibrato. But otherwise, if it's not part of a normal style, it's just something less rather than something more. And I'd much rather go for a good, clean, centred sound and people listening to the blend of the whole section. So it really is a section sound. And then I yes. think you get a lovely clarity, you get a lovely warmth. People can feel more comfortable playing. It really depends on the orchestra you're working with. You've got to explore the sound with the orchestra. Well, you're, you're right. You know, if you take a a standard symphony orchestra that doesn't necessarily specialise in, in in that music, but will play, are willing to play it and willing to experiment or whatever else, yeah. every violinist within a section has a different technique on how uh, on how they use the bow. 
you know, I used to teach my students, as I said, my violin students to play Bach with minimal vibrato, vibrato yeah. in basis. But it meant that you had to phrase with the bow and had to be much more um, giving with the, you know, with the bow and much less reliant on vibrato to produce your sound. But there are other people who are taught the other way. And so, yeah, it would be foolish to insist on you know, this completely... I don't, I don't want to call it dead sound because it's not dead. It's just a different sound um, with no vibrato for everybody. If they all have different techniques, um, yeah. I mean, it can be a dead sound if it's sounding. Yes, it can. Yeah, if yeah. it's sounding <laughs> dead or like sandpaper, yeah. then of course it's mm. something not to follow up. But it, I mean, things have changed enormously now, yes. and yeah. and you see that people are much more equipped in adapting their sounds and sometimes for my taste they have an extreme idea uh, of certain sort of rules in performance of mm. of uh, older music which um, they apply which don't always sound natural to me and mm. so I like to loosen that, that up because I think there's um, there's a lot of mystery being made out of stuff which should very often simply be good musicianship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, because it's popped into my head and I thought, well, uh, if I was sitting in, in a pub now chatting to you, this is exactly the question I'd ask, so I'm going to ask it. Okay. Um, there are plenty of people who would say to you, if we were going to perform a Beethoven symphony um, mm. or a Mozart, let's stick with Mozart 39, that if Mozart was here today and could hear modern instruments and could hear what an orchestra with eight basses would sound like and could hear what the sound with vibrato, would, you know, modern woodwind instruments and, and modern trumpets and pedal timpani, all of that, the, their argument would be, and it's not my argument, but it's their mm. argument, would be, I think he would probably enjoy that sound and would probably be happy with it um, played like that. Or do you think, no, he'd probably insist on what he heard when he wrote it uh, in the you know, 1700s? Um, do you have a feeling on that? I mean, it's, there's, I mean, there's a side topic of things like stop notes on horns. Um, yeah. So some okay. some conductors are very sticky on you know oh well that well that was a stop note and it should sound snarly. My argument has sometimes been well a horn player of skill would have wanted to make his horn sound the same whether it was a natural note or a stop note and would have covered it. You know that, that it's a big topic. Um, but I'll throw it out there at you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think first of all, um, Mozart, like any other composer, uh, would have liked the fact that his music's being played. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's the first thing. Yeah. Um, and then, presumably, he'd listen. And uh, I think the questions are, my questions would be, well, are we getting the sort of clarity that we yes. want out of the orchestra? Uh, Mozart, and indeed Haydn too, were by no means averse to very large orchestras. Mm, mm. And so the uh, for them, the novelty of that topic was something pretty exciting. And yeah. so it's certainly a possibility that we can play with very large forces. And, you know, there's 
there's some recordings of people who are playing with very large forces, something of older conductors, um, have managed to get amazing lightness and cohesion. I think mm. of Kleiber, for instance, doing yes. Mozart. Mm. And in fact, there's a lot of sort of tradition that we forget about. We tend to assume that sounds were very blown up in the past. But, uh, well, funnily enough, even if you uh, look at Mahler's symphonies, you see how very often he writes in sort of chamber textures. Mm. Although he uses big forces and he likes clarity. And we, we know from Richard Strauss's little bits of recording that we, uh, uh, we know something about this very sort of classical approach. You know, he sort of set out on his journey. I think journey is very important because um, he set out on the journey and then would sort of go through it. Not a lot of uh, wallowing in big moments. Um, and, and you get that in pianists too. You know, Rachmaninoff, you hear incredible clarity. No mm. great wallowing in those lovely tunes, but what you hear is the left hand and the, the sort of motor of things going on with, with great clarity. So I think anything can be made to work as long as we're really aware of the music as the leader rather mm. than uh, just... Um, feeling that a big modern symphony orchestra makes one sound or a period instrument orchestra makes another sound. Of course they do. They are, uh, they are different worlds. But the other thing is that music doesn't always have to sound the same. So um, <laughs> we don't have to try to make the modern orchestra sound like a period orchestra, all we need to do is to get a result which will satisfy the requirements of the music. Now, of course, people get a bit confused uh, because people are rather encouraged to feel that there's only one way to do something well. And mm. I'm very against that. Mm. Here, <laughs> here. Um, that's wonderful that you say that. I mean, yeah, I, I love the fact that we can listen to the same piece in a myriad of different ways on period instruments through to whatever. Um, I, I think what's been wonderful is how the period instrument movement has informed um, those not in it on, on, you know, how music can be lighter. And as you, the word you use so often there is clarity, which is a wonderful word. Um, and I, I think it's it's made the performances better, um, uh, and uh, with with a you know a, a standard symphony orchestra, it's very difficult to talk about them without putting them, as you said earlier, in pigeonholes. But you, you sort of have to in a way. Yes, it's funny actually. I've realised I realised listening to your um, uh, some of your interviews and with talking with uh, other conductors that a lot of really wonderful modern conductors feel quite uncomfortable about performing Mozart symphonies. Mm. And I think the challenges for a conductor-conductor are actually huge because one thing is that there's not enough for the conductor to do. 
in a sense. And physically, there's not enough to do. And playing Mozart symphonies is really about getting the musicians into a place where they're listening properly and then very much keeping out of the way of the Mm. process so Mm. that they can get on with their music making without being intercepted too Mm. much. And I've watched uh, videos of really wonderful conventional conductors doing just that with Mozart, getting out of the way and doing the essentials. So the musicians get into a mode of really listening. You talk about that, uh, about Kleiber doing Mozart. There's that wonderful video of him doing the Mozart Lint Symphony with the Vienna Philharmonic oh, and the music yes. for Ein. When he's barely doing anything, he's just showing some phrasing. He's, you know, but he's not, he's, he's not beating time. He's just, he, he's part of the process, but he's not, you know, he's not driving it. That's yeah. the most important thing. He's, he's a very happy passenger who's maybe in charge of the sat-nav, if I'm going yes. to use that metaphor. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Although... Uh, how he's got them to that point is quite interesting. Um, I remember I had the privilege once of sharing a dressing room with him. You know, in in Köln at the Philharmonie, uh, Mm. they have the dressing rooms where there's one main door and then there's an outer room and then there's two separate dressing rooms. And Mm. I'd done an evening concert with the English concert and he was doing a late night concert. So somehow around about 10 o'clock, we coincided. Very mm. charming, gracious man. And I, I stayed for his concert, Bayerische Rundfunk. And it was the, the Jupiter Symphony and the uh, Brahms Second Symphony. Mm. Uh, and the, the Jupiter Symphony didn't work that well. Somehow the the players weren't properly focused. They got their way into it. And then there was absolutely stunning Brahms' Second Symphony. And I talked to a youngish second violinist afterwards and he said something which I've never forgotten. He said, the thing about Kleiber is that he just stands there and looks beautiful and lets us play as we want. <laughs> and of course, nothing really could be further from the truth. Exactly. <laughs> but the wonderful thing is that this violinist felt that he could be himself and just play as he wanted. Mm. And <laughs> that was, uh, I thought, a, a very revealing uh, comment about Kleiber's uh, magic. Brilliant. Um, I have one more question which I've asked everybody, which is about score preparation. Oh, yes. When you come to prepare a score, do you sit at your desk to prepare a score or do you sit at your harpsichord or your piano to prepare a score? And are you a scribbler of notes in your music or do you like to keep your music nice and clean? I don't I don't do it at the keyboard and I'm just occasionally I'll take something to the keyboard which I want to mm. examine but I prefer to sit there and read the score as I've always read music um I always found reading music pretty approachable 
so yeah. I like to do that. Um, it can be that when I'm learning a piece that I'll write certain things in the score which I may later take out or occasionally leaves one or two of them. And most of those things are to do with structure, mm. uh, phrase lengths, you know, is it four mm. bars or is it, I'm like with Haydn, is it, oh, it's always five bars or three bars with mm. Haydn. But I think finding the architecture is the most important thing of all. Otherwise, uh, you've got no direction and uh, no, well, no foundation for people people to be able to play their music and I think this is the main thing that we have to do is to show the structure if they can understand what that is if it's six bars or if it's five bars or that's the thing that that's somehow very important and so I mark those sort of things and if there's too many markings in the part I'll use another score if I've got one or take them out because they're a bit distracting in the actual process. That's um, actually it's not quite true. Because if I'm doing some more modern music, I might, uh, because I have a relative number blindness and can confuse myself, I might write some things in to really make it very clear for me. Mm. If there's a lot of changes of bars, you know, over and over again. But uh, normally with, with music, music of old times, then I'd like to keep it pretty simple. And I like to do that um, with the orchestral parts too. I like to, depending on an orchestra, and one has to gauge that, and the amount of rehearsal time, how much to mark in and how much to leave as the sense of language that you know that they can get. Because uh, there's one thing I really hate is uh, <laughs> if I hear a recording and when I hear the dynamic markings in the part, it really pisses me off. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and I, whereas I'd love to hear a, a diminuendo, I don't want to hear a printed diminuendo in that sense. And mm. I think there's a danger of getting in the way of um, the composer I think this is especially with classical music of course mm. where people perhaps feel that they need to um, interpose uh, much more than I would like to do with those composers yes they're interpreting things that uh, that they feel are there and then to make their point overdo it that yeah what that, that's what I, yeah. yes yeah. I don't yeah. like it when it it sounds like nail varnish you know, yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah. A, a great extreme, but you know, uh, I want it to be organic from within the music. So there's a difference between shaping and very fussy dynamic markings. Trevor, it's 10 questions time. And with everybody else, we start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, I actually love silence, real mm. silence. It's hard to get silence. And 
uh, well, one of the wonderful things about the, that sort of lockdown time uh, was that there was no sort of constant in the background plane noise mm. living in London. You know, it was yeah. there were moments of real silence, and then that would, of course, there would be wonderful bird songs. So I love that too mm. and of course there's that very very special silence which happens uh, when the music's really working and an audience goes into that special silence and and you know that they're somehow there inside the music mm. and that mm. always seems just a a, a gift and uh, and you know it it's a good thing it doesn't always happen because it's, <laughs> it's it's not totally in our control, uh, mm. but that's a very wonderful thing. So I go for that for what I really like. And then you want the one I don't like at all. Yes. Uh, mm. I don't think I like the sound of power tools. <laughs> no, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I wonder if anybody is a fan of power tools. Well, that's a brilliant <laughs> answer. I'm not sure we've had that. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I'd be with my grandson, Konstantinos. And in fact, I'm going to him on Sunday to celebrate his fourth birthday. And what a relief that is after all these months away. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, we talked about Kleiber, of course. Mm. I guess that has to be almost everybody's answer. Um, he's, he's popular, yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. I having those wonderful conversations with Bernstein, which gave me so much about music and inspired me so much. I've got a soft spot for much of his work, not all of it. I do remember hearing an absolutely stunning fifth Mahler at the Proms mm. years ago. And he was conducting with incredible economy at that time and total respect for the orchestra of Vienna. And they mm. were playing like a dream. So that was something I remember. So he has to be on, on the list. And then I think I'd have to mention Abado uh, mm. because I liked the way... Well, I think his music came from a similar place to mine. You, you know, he he was never very good at uh, at telling people what to do in rehearsal, <laughs> um, but somehow it was all in his hands and his being, mm. and uh, a very wonderful way of making music. And who would be a favourite current conductor? Well, I think Yannick Nézet-Séguin uh, has to be there. I've always been amazed at his sensitivity to different sorts of music and the joy of his music making. It's nice to see there's a number of conductors now who are very into the joy of music making. Andres mm. Nelson's, for instance, <laughs> yeah. who's very impressive now, you know, he's really grown and... Um, well, of course, he's no longer around, but I used to very much like Maris Janssons. Mm. Um, 
And then, but of course today there's also most amazing number of really fine young women conductors wow. coming along. And the only one of those I really know and admire enormously is Mirga Krasnita wow. Tyler, whom I first heard in Salzburg and then came across her. Oh, she was actually assisting me, although she was ill and not there, I think, until the last day, but in Los Angeles. But I, I just like her spirit of music making very much. And I'm so glad that these women are being given the regard that they should be given now. And I hope that that'll come more and more. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I think that really it has to come down to emotional things of creating the architecture of a big time span. Mm. So Don Giovanni, for instance, or even more, because it's a a sort of theatrical piece, but without the wider parameters of opera, uh, the St. Matthew Passion. Mm. That um, because I don't do things to formula that means for me that we've got to be willing to set out on the journey and one thing how one thing is performed prepares the way for the next thing so the dramas or the journey is always going to be slightly different it's the Mm. same territory but it's a different day that you're walking through it and to get the overall pacing and cohesion uh, I think that's a challenge. It's a challenge I enormously enjoy, but I think it's probably the most difficult challenge. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? You know, I, I don't really need anything. I'm quite happy. Uh, I I can't find a reply to that. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> so, uh, others have said exactly the same. Oh, right. For, ve- for various reasons. But no, they, if, you, if you're happy to leave home... As you are, well then leave home as you are. That's brilliant. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I don't think I would change anything right now. Um, You know, things get much easier in many ways in all sorts of life as you get older. So as I'm over 70, I'm sort of quite happy about the thing of being a conductor. Certainly, if I think back, I would have wished that I could deal with my own very thin skin more effectively than I did in many things. But now I wouldn't change anything about conducting. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, it's actually the case that I wouldn't like to attempt anything else. You know, my from that very first experience that I said to you at the beginning of the programme, to me, for me, uh, it's the place to be. And Mm. I've never felt that I... Oh, I think, um, actually, when I was a choir boy, at a time I thought I might like to be a priest. I think I was rather impressed by their clothes and, uh, (laughs) and also the fact that they seemed to be grander than everybody else. And 
um, in a sense, I suppose that's what I've become, uh, you know, because it's the music, if it is not the same path necessarily as theirs, but it's a, a sort of spiritual path. So you become a, a, a sort of leader, spiritual leader in a way. So perhaps I've achieved my ambition. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? It would be something very simple. I don't think mm. place is the most important thing. Uh, just the most simple, wonderful foods. Uh, I think we're the summertime, so let's have some beautiful wild salmon, uh, mm. poached lightly so that it's and it's served sort of tepid, perhaps as a mm. as a starter. Of course, like so many other conductors, I really want a wonderful steak uh, <laughs> of uh, marvellous organic meat with enough fat in it to lubricate the meat properly, done to perfection, medium rare. I think as far as some... I, of course, with the first course, I'd have the delicious Chablis and, mm. uh, and for the second, a delicious claret of the best year we could think of not perhaps going back too too far but mm -hmm. uh, you know keeping then let's keep it in this this century and uh, something well if you know we could have a corda tournel or something uh, very exciting <laughs> that's about that's about it I'm I might want to I, I don't really do sweets very much uh, I might want to have a little bit of goat's cheese afterwards we'd see and uh, that's it, yes. That'll do me. That sounds wonderful. Uh, Trevor, it's been fascinating. It's been a joy. I've had so much fun. And I hope to see you very soon. Oh, I'm glad you've had fun. I think fun is, is a very important part of our lives and music making. Thanks for this. I've enjoyed it too. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a young French conductor who, in her short career, has already founded her own orchestra, she's embarked on a very successful guest conducting career all across the globe, and she is the current Tacky Concordia Fellow. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>